Say you're a professional landscaper. You're not just tough. You're professional grade. And so are your tools. Because you got best-in-class Echo X series products. You got a perfect balance of power, weight, and performance from a professional-grade 56-volt battery system. Max-out battery tech that gives 100% power till a 0% charge. Echo X series means best-in-class tools for best-in-class pros. So when we say Echo is professional-grade, we mean it. Echo. Power on and on. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Do you love visiting gardens when you're on holiday? Isn't it great when you see plants growing in their preferred climates and when you're dazzled by a beautiful view or scene that could never really be created at home? And isn't it wonderful to combine our passion for gardening with travel, even if it is just once or twice a year? Hello, I'm Kevin, and today I'm talking to the nation's head gardener, Monty Don. Monty's been lucky enough to visit gardens across the globe for TV. In fact, you could say he's one of the most travelled gardeners in the world. But what Monty experiences, unlike us, is far from a holiday. I was intrigued to find out what it's like to film overseas with all the busyness of a packed schedule, planes, hotels and oodles of camera kit to cart about. What's it like to learn from and speak to gardeners from other countries? Is there a particular overseas garden that's made a lasting impression? Monty and I discussed all this and more, but I started by asking him, simply, why he enjoys visiting gardens overseas. It's a very good question because I'm not really a traveller and it is one of the great sort of curiosities of my life that until I started to travel for television, I'd barely travelled anywhere at all. I mean, I'd been, you know, I'd been on holiday like most people, but much less than most people and, and certainly was not by nature a traveller. And in many ways, I'm still not. So that's one of the curiosities of it. So therefore, I think one of the great attractions and this might seem perverse, is that it's work. In other words, the motivation to do it is driven by work. And so it gets me and takes me to places that I just would not go to. You know, even if I I had all the money in the world and all the time in the world, I know I wouldn't do it. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, of course, you know, the great luxury of being paid and well, actually, it's not. It's not the being paid. That that's never a motive. The great luxury of have someone else organise everything. All I have to do is be ready for the car that picks me up to take me to the airport, and pack. Of course, I mean, I'm being disingenuous, and do lots of research, and prepare myself, you know, properly. But but in terms of the terrible paraphernalia of travelling, nearly all that is taken out of my hands, and that's a huge luxury. I mean, it's beyond measure. I'm just thinking myself, you know, I'm fortunate enough to go on the odd holiday and half of the trauma of the whole thing is, have you got this? Have you got that? Have you booked this thing? Is that thing booked? You know, and if that's taken out of the equation, well... Oh, what I-, I mean, my trauma is packing is always a nightmare because I'm in front of the camera and there's continuity and there's a the fact that, you know, is it going to be 40 degrees, in which case I want the lightest possible clothing, or is, is it going to be sort of 20 degrees, in which case it's going to be utterly inadequate? You know, for example, I always pack four identical shirts. I have four of one and four of another. So because we very often film out a sequence. 
And then you find you get a bit wrong and you're having to either wear a smelly shirt the next day or madly wash it overnight in your sink. So, I mean, there are a few things that, that travelling for television is, is different to most people. And I never travel light because that's out of the question. And, for example, you know, I'm doing a Spanish series at the moment and we're off in a couple of weeks' time. The last two trips, we've been away for two weeks and in each case we stayed in 10 hotels. Wow. Not many people would do that unless they're backpacking or something. So therefore, everywhere you go, you have to pack, unpack, sort of get your stuff out. And just the physical thing of suitcase into a lift up, invariably, the heavier your suitcase is, the more little flights of stairs you have to go up. And you get in at eight o'clock at night and you leave at six o'clock in the morning and so on and so forth. It sounds hard work. Travel is a wonderful thing. But I mean, that's hard work. I mean, it is, you said at the beginning, work was the attraction. But it is work. I mean, that's hard. That's a punishing schedule. I'd expect for no sympathy because, you know, you, you just come <laughs> back. If I've just come back from, I don't know, Japan or, or, or South America or, or Spain or whatever, and I say, oh, it's been hard work, nobody is going to sympathise. But the truth is, it's very hard work. It genuinely is. I come back exhausted. And so does the crew, and so does everybody involved in it, because it's incredibly intense. A normal routine, a normal day routine, and let's take Spain as an example, and, and I've, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about other trips and, and other places. The alarm goes at quarter to six, and we always, with the hotel, arrange for the earliest possible breakfast. Half the time, it's not possible, so we set off without breakfast, because we film in gardens, as any every garden editor, photographer, filmmaker knows, morning light is the best light. So you get in there as early as they will have you. And if that's five o'clock, we go in at five. But normally it's a, we try and arrive about up or six, seven is when people are prepared to get up and let us in. Having had breakfast. And in this day and age, we're always short of time. We're always short of money. We're always on the move. When I did 80 Gardens, for example, what we do now in two weeks, we had three to four weeks to do. Right, okay. So almost twice as long. So we could afford to spend all day in a garden or we could afford to wait for the light, you know. Now we get there and we think, right, we've got four hours. We've got to get it all and we plan it. So we're always rushing. We're always sort of feeling, oh, my God, the clouds are coming over. Are we going to be able to do that? You go and get some lights. I'll go and wrecky this. Shall we do the pieces to the camera first? Shall we do the walking shots? If we get the drone up, you know, can we do that? So there's all these things we're trying to juggle. And at the same time, I'm trying to think, right, what is here? What am I seeing? What am I going to say? What's going on here? So that's tense. It's stressful. And it's, it's wonderful because it's high octane. It's what we do. It's our job. And we're good at it. And it's always good to do something you know you're good at. That sounds boastful, but we just are. You know, it's, I'm not saying that other people aren't good at it too, but, but we know what we're doing. And so it's very intense there's no drifting around, chatting or anything like that. It's completely focused. And then, you know, the rain will come or the director, um, it's a PD, which, which means producer-director, so we, nowadays we never travel with both, will say, come on, we've got 10 minutes to finish. We've got to get on. The next, next location is an hour and a half away. They're expecting us at 2 o'clock. It's now 1 o'clock. There won't be time for lunch. We'll pick up a sandwich on the way. Or I've, I've ordered some, some stuff to come in and, and it's being delivered in five minutes and we'll eat it in the car, you know, or whatever. How big is the crew? I'm interested to know how many you take. The current last three trips have been a cameraman and a drone operator who also functions as an assistant cameraman and runner. 
although actually he's a very skilled, good drone operator, and he's not a bad cameraman, he's B unit. And we either take a sound recordist. In the UK, I'm doing a filming in the UK where we have a sound recordist who travels with us. But on the last three trips overseas, we pick up one where we're going. So, for example, in, in Spain, we have Juan, who is our sound recordist. So we have the last two trips, we'll be meeting him. So we meet him at the airport in Spain. And we've done that in America. We've done it uh, in Japan. So our travelling team, at biggest, is a PD, a producer-director, cameraman, uh, an assistant cameraman, stroke runner, and a sound recordist, and me. So that's five of us. It's not many, actually, because, I mean, I've, I've seen, you, you know, many of your travel series, and they're beautiful. They seem really huge productions when you're looking at, you know, when you, it's incredible that that's such a small team is producing that. Amazing. I can't take any credit at all for that. That is entirely down to, to two things. I always work with the same cameraman when we travel, and he's a genius. He is, I think, the best in the business. You know, in the same way, I always work with the same cameraman doing Gardner's World, who I think is also a genius and, and wonderful. And I would willingly travel, you know, but I've worked with both of them. I feel privileged to work with two of the best cameramen. And I've been doing this for 35, 36 years. And I've worked with scores, if not hundreds of cameramen, and they stand head and shoulders. You know, I've, I have the great privilege of just working with people who are fantastically good at their jobs. And same with sound recorders. We take sound for granted, but trust me, it's essential. Bad sound ruins good pictures. And they're incredibly good. And so there is this real feeling of being in the A-team. And I'm just happy to come along. I just think, great, I'm with the good guys. And so therefore, up's your game. You feel you've got to do well. Of course. So that's actually, it sounds pretentious, but actually that's the single best thing about it, is this feeling of working with people who are really good. And I am blessed to be part of that team. So, and, and I imagine it would be the same if, you know, you were playing for a fantastic football team or a cricket team or something, if you're in the team and you're winning everything and everyone around you is good, that's why you do it. That's the greatest thrill there could be. And then the other thing is, I mean, we we often cover two gardens in a day. We move on. We normally finish with the light. So it, it varies from season to season and country to country, but, but it's usually somewhere around about 7 o'clock-ish, sometimes a bit later. If, if the light is really good in the evening. Then we have to find our hotel, which could be an hour's drive away, check in. So we're lucky to get in by eight. Batteries have to be charged. Kit has to be serviced. All that day's, we still call them rushes, but in fact, that goes back to film days, and which pre, then was followed by tape. Now it's all on a card. They have to be downloaded. And they're all logged. And what logging means is, they are literally annotated. So such and such a shot, what is it? What's the time on it? So when it goes to the editor, uh, which could be months later, they don't just get this list of, of stuff. They have no idea what it is or where it is. Every shot will have a, a little note by it, every sequence. You know, Monty doing piece to camera in this garden uh, about so-and-so. It's amazing because the, the day's not done, is it? You know, you get to your hotel and you'd think, oh, glass of wine, lovely, <laughs> have some dinner. But for those guys, there's still a lot to do, isn't there? There's still a lot to do. So, and then there's that other thing, you know, the restaurant is closing or, or they need last orders, our sensor. So we try and meet 
sort of, well, as early as we can, depending when we get in, but by nine, and, and if possible, by half past eight, have a meal. And the the poor old B camera person, he may well go on till after midnight logging. And, I mean, I've often said to him in the morning when I see him, so how do you sleep? He said, well, I, I just fell onto the bed fully clothed and found it was six o'clock, you know, in the morning. Having, uh, And then we do it all over again. And we don't have a day off. We do it for two weeks. No day off, no time off. It's That's the same every day. And uh, then we go home, hopefully with a programme. And very tired. <laughs> and very tired and very often having to film Gardens World the next day. Uh, so, but, so it's a, it's a really rich experience. Nowadays, when we film for two weeks, we will film a minimum of 12 gardens and sometimes up to about 15. So every day you're doing at least one new garden. Uh, and I say quite often two. And I take masses of notes on everything. And very often I'm writing a book about it. In fact, nearly always am. So this, all this is coming in. All these sensations are coming in. So my job, really, is to try and have a little calm, cool space in my head, which is analysing and, and taking in what I'm seeing and not getting too caught up in the rushing and around and, and, and you know, all this thing. I, I try and keep a bit of me separate. But at the same time, the other thing which we do is we are always discussing... Uh, we don't write a script... We do a lot of preparatory work, months and months of preparatory work. And we have researchers and they're very good and we have meetings and I will say where I want to go and the director will say where she wants to go and researchers will suggest something else and we'll ring round. You know, if it's Spain, for example, I did a trip in January to go and check out a few gardens, had some nice meals as well, but it was essentially research. We finally come up with a list, which could be only... 10 days, two weeks before we leave, that is, is cast down. And, of course, everything is booked in advance. Every hotel, every interview, every everything has to have permission. You have to have a permit to film everywhere. So it's all booked. And then something goes wrong. Then on day two, a flight is delayed or, or the weather is... Suddenly there's a rainstorm and it ruins a garden or someone gets COVID or you know, something is going to go wrong. So we are constantly revising, and or what also happens, we go somewhere and it's just not very good. You know, all the pictures have been great, all the word has been great. It sometimes happens, doesn't it? It sometimes happens. And, and so you then think, well, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to work this? So we're constantly rewriting, but we're not rewriting a script, we're rewriting a story. And then how we tell the story, visually and verbally, is in the doing. So, for example, when we, I do a piece to camera, I never know exactly what I'm going to say. I know what I'm talking about, but I have no idea of what I'm going to say. And then we will construct the, the, the images to go around it. OK, well, if we're talking about that, we need a shot of that. We need a cutaway of that. You know, you were talking about those lilies. I need pictures of lilies. Fine. So let's get that. And by the same token, if we, we talk about something, we have people don't realise how you have to build a scene. So you need... A walking shot. You need a hand on a door, opening a door. You need feet going up steps. You need rain dropping off a gutter. You need all these different things. And they serve two purposes. One is to build the story. And two is to give you edit points. Because we film probably, uh, I don't know, something like 50 hours of material. Wow, that's a lot. Sounds a lot. Crumbs. So we throw away 49 hours 
But what you're trying to do is give the editor a selection. So some of the things we just don't use at all because it doesn't work out. But more often than not, there'll be six alternatives that the editor can use. And sometimes one or two of them leap out and they're the best ones and that's that. And when it's logged, that sort of thing is logged. The camera will say, light was perfect on that. That was perfect for me. And the log will say, best shot, you know, this sequence. Or I'll say, because I'll do a piece to camera maybe three, four times just to get it dead right. And I will, after say the third one, I'll say, for me, that was the best one. But the sound records say, but unfortunately, there was someone who had a chainsaw in the background, so we'll do it again. Or, or the the you know, very often the director will say, "I don't know what you meant by that." I said, "But it's obvious what I meant." Well, if I didn't know what you meant, maybe Mrs. Jones at Port Marion Avenue in Barnstable won't know either. Better do it again. And so the whole thing is pieced together and built in pieces along this slightly manic schedule. I mean, I'm just thinking I'd like to come back to Spain if we can, actually. I mean, I know, you know, we've, we've chatted a few times about your trips. I know you've been across a few times uh, this year already and there are, there are more to come. I mean, why Spain and what, what have you found there that's either surprised or delighted you? Well, why Spain? The answer is why not? You know, <laughs> I mean, we've done Italy, we've done France. It's one of our great European cultures and countries and is part of our European heritage. And as gardeners, we all know that we, you know, there, there is no garden is an island. Every single garden, with the possible exception of some Japanese gardens, are heavily influenced by, by everything all around us. So the why Spain question is an easy one because it's there. Uh, you know, it's, it's as simple as that. What I found, what was really interesting is I don't know Spain terribly well. I mean, I, like everybody else, I've been on holiday there. I've been visits. I've probably been maybe six or seven times, but across nearly seven decades, you know. I mean, it's not somewhere I go to regularly. And I've never been particularly aware of its gardens. They they haven't leapt out at me in the way that Italian gardens do or French gardens or Japanese gardens. uh, Well, I'll be honest, I sort of think of Granada and, you know, Alhambra, and beyond that, I would think, not quite sure, actually. Exactly. Well, Well, I mean, I think you're not alone. So that's a very good reason, of course, to do it because people don't have a preconception, so they don't know what they're going to see. I have been amazed by how many gardens there are. Amazed. Now, where you're correct is that the Islamic influence that you get in Granada and and Seville and in Cordoba is huge. I mean, it really is a very, very strong influence, and you see that all over the South. And essentially, it, it manifests itself now in courtyards and in closed spaces that come from this idea of the Paradise Garden of protecting from heat and from outside, combined with sort of Western influence. And you get this wonderful combination, the Mudia combination, round about from 1200 to 1500, where you get Islamic and Christian cultures cooperating and working together in a way that creates sort of superb tiles, architecture, you know, way planting. And they're always allied to buildings and structure. Then they're never, you can never take the garden away from the building. So that's fascinating. But I mean, recently, the last trip was to the north. And in the north uh, west, up on the Atlantic coast, around Bilbao and Santander and Santiago de Compostela. Incredible. I had no, I'd never been there before. And 
the landscape, and I don't know if you know it, is rather like our Cornwall or Pembroke or maybe bits of Ireland. Very green. I was going to say very green. Temperate. Green then. You green, just don't green, think of Spain. Absolutely yeah. not. Absolutely not. It's lush, it's green, it's temperate, so it's not particularly hot in summer and it's, and it's mild in winter. So you get this verdancy, which I don't think people know about unless they've been there. And, and for a long time, the wealthy people from Madrid had their holiday homes there because it's, Madrid, of course, is baking hot in summer and they could go there and it's mild and cool. And, you know, they think it's delightful that it's cool. And it is delightful. It's absolutely wonderful. And so you're getting gardens of a type that don't fit any kind of Spanish idiom that we see from the prism of our holiday-making, Torremolinos-based, you know, experience. And so, so that was completely fascinating. And I visited some wonderful gardens there and in the Basque Country and all along the coast. And also seeing, we tried to have a look at, at very much on this trip, the effect of climate change, because Spain, of course, is more in the front line of that than we are. They're getting more heat, more floods, more more problems. We're looking at what can, sort of environmental measures people are taking in cities, for example, the parks they're making and they're collecting floodplains. And, and they're doing a lot. They're doing more than we are in many ways. I've been to Barcelona and, and seen what's going on there. I had a really good trip starting in Mallorca and going across to Valencia, then down, all down the south coast, right down to Gibraltar, and then up to Seville and across to Madrid. And my next trip is going to be based in Madrid, but going the centre of Spain, really looking at the history. You know, I love all that. I, I think the, the real key was, God, it's so long ago now, in 2006... Even maybe even 2005, 80 Gardens was commissioned around the world in 80 Gardens. And I was asked if I wanted to do it. And I said, yes, very much, but not that title. I really don't <laughs> like Around the World in 80 Gardens. You know, that's too derivative. Can't we call it something better? And I was told no. So then I went to see the head of BBC Two. And we were chatting about things. And I said, you've got to change the title. It's really crap. He said, listen to me. He said, this programme is going to be made and it's going to be called Around the World Naty Guns. You can do it if you want to, but if you don't want to, someone else will. Of course they Over would. to you. <laughs> Over to you. I said, OK, fine, I get the message. He said, what I want you to do, he said, stop worrying about the title. What I want you to do is get under the skin of each culture through the medium of its gardens. And that's what I've tried to do ever since. It was the best sort of briefing I could have had. And to be honest, that's exactly my, my motive, really, whether I'm in Spain or in the southern states of America or Japan or, you know, I've done a trip in Iran, I've been to Morocco, Turkey, South Africa, all over. And always I'm thinking, what is this telling me about the people that made it? What's it telling me about the food they eat, the climate, the clothes they wear, the way they view gardens, the way they, they live their lives? You know, I've always said that gardens are only complete when they have gardeners. A garden needs a gardener. I was going to say that. I mean, we've talked quite a lot about the places you visited. But of course, you must have met some characters over the years as oh, well. God, you must yes. have met some fascinating oh, people overseas. As you know... There is a, a language of gardening that, by and large, is universal. 
and binds everybody together, you know. And I've talked to people in the depths of the Amazon about growing food. I've talked to people in Tokyo, in in China. I've been in Beijing. I've been in New Zealand. I've been in Australia. I've been all, all over. By and large, we speak the same language. But, and this is the important thing, is you come at things from different angles. And that's so interesting. I mean, I think the most extraordinary place I visited was in India. And it was a garden made in the jungle up in the north of India. And the the person who made it had been a refugee from Pakistan, a partition. And he was a Hindu fleeing across the border. And as you know, it was sort of hideous, the, the amount of people that were killed and slaughtered and left their homes and abandoned. But he made it across with nothing, literally, literally the clothes on his back, and got a job working on creating this new city, Chandrigarh, in the north of India. And they demolished quite a lot of villages in order to make it. And every day at the end of the day, he would take rubble in a wheelbarrow or on his bicycle into the jungle, into a clearing, and begin to piece it together to make what he called a garden, but was a sort of little city, model city, really, using bits of old porcelain, brick, tile, whatever he could get. And he did this for about 13, 14 years with nobody knowing about it. I think his wife knew about it, but nobody else at all knew about it. And he had created this extraordinary landscape. I mean, on a big scale, really big. And then someone stumbled across it and called the authorities and they were going to bulldoze it because he hadn't got permission to make it. And people came to see it and realised it was extraordinary and so resisted. And instead of bulldozing it, they, they declared it a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And now it has six million visitors a year. And I interviewed him, and he was about 90. And the first thing he said, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. I was only trying to make a garden. Uh, and what I realised is he had never got past the point of feeling like he was trespassing. And yet he had made this extraordinary creation. I mean, it is deeply moving, actually, I think. And it's overwhelming. You know, it's, it's one of the great World Heritage Sites. And this, the incredible modesty and humility of the man, who didn't seem to realise at all what he had done other than he had made it. And you realise that, that that ambition of artistic vision, who came out of somebody with nothing, was so sort of humbling and inspiring and in some ways confusing, you know, it goes against all the things that we associate with great projects and the grandiosity of our Western vision. So that stays in my memory. And I mean, that was a long time ago now, but I'll never forget that. Never. I mean, fascinating as well, but it sounds, I mean, I'm going to look it up. When we, when we finish chatting, I'm going to have a look, look it up and, and see, because it sounds as much about construction and, you know, building something as much as plants. Of course, it was in a lovely landscape, but it, it doesn't sound like it was about curating plants. It's one of the things that when you travel and see in many gardens, and I, I worked out the other day, I've probably seen more gardens around the world than anyone else alive. Because I don't 
know of anyone else who's had the same opportunity to do that. Now, I don't, that doesn't mean anything in itself, but it does mean that, A, I'm blessed, and B, I have got a very broad worldview of gardens. And the one thing that, in terms of our British gardening, that comes across are two things, actually. One is we value gardens and gardening much more than any other nation. And it is much more closely bound up in our culture than any other nation. We take it for granted. And that's wonderful. I mean, uh, this is in no way a criticism, but it is a fact. But the downside of that is we assume that our approach to gardening is sort of the only one or the right one or the, or the, or the you know, it's the way there is a correct way to go about things. And the parameters that we have established culturally, we see as, as fixed. Whereas the truth is they're not, they're arbitrary. And I have seen, you know, for instance, there was a, a garden in Mexico I went to that was made by a superb architect and landscape designer called Louis Barragan in Mexico City. And he he was incredibly influential. And his own house, he had a roof garden. And the roof garden is, consists solely of painted walls. There is not a single plant at all. But what there is, is the shadow of a tree nearby. And he deliberately raised the walls so he couldn't see other trees because he said they were intruding into his garden. And the director and I, who incidentally... I still work with most weeks in my own garden uh, for Gardener's World. He said, we can't film this because it's not a garden. And I said, it is a garden because he said it was a garden. It was his garden. And there is not a single plant. There is a shadow of one plant in it. But what it did do was brilliantly, it used proportions of space outside and colour which he supplied by paint on the walls, very, very carefully selected colour, to create a sense of colour and light and shade and balance. Now, that's the language of a garden that we would use. If you create an outdoor space, you talk about colour, you talk about shade, you talk about light, you talk about proportion. And, I mean, that's an extreme example. But, you know, and I've been to gardens, for example, as I said, I remember in the Amazon, where there was just a sort of slight scratched out bit of earth in amongst the jungle. That was her garden. And I think that's what it's done to me is completely broaden my views of what a garden can be and, and, and might be. Yes, and I think what I'm gaining from this as well is that it might be extremely different, as you say, to what we would consider as a, as a good garden. But I imagine it might make the person that's creating it feel the same we all get a feeling from our gardens don't we when we're in them they make us feel a certain way and if it makes you happy or calm or invigorated or whatever then it's doing a job isn't it regardless of what it looks like so it is i mean there is the other factor of course which which we as a heavily industrialized society forget is a lot of places in the world a garden is an absolute necessity to produce food and the luxury of having this the relaxation the calm the feeling of good is just that it's a luxury 
And there are plenty of places that simply have never had the opportunity to experience that. That a garden is a place where their prime concern is to produce enough food to survive. And the idea of wasting, as they would see it, space for just relaxing in, in any shape or form, is just something they literally can't afford. And what was terribly interesting is when we did Adriatic Gardens a couple of years ago, even in Croatia, which you know is, is a short hop from Italy, because of the wars that had been there, they were only just returning, in many cases, to having bits of garden that weren't for food production. You travel inland, you travel around, there were still many, many gardens where every square inch was used to produce food. And again, I mean, if you look at the history of gardens in, in this country, it wasn't really until the early 19th century when you got the development of a what we would now call a middle class who were working either in offices or in a city, who had a patch of ground. It could be attached to the house in the city or it could be in the, in the suburbs, which, of course, didn't exist before, really, um, railways came. And they had gardens that could be used after work for relaxation, for pleasure, for display, and then increasingly for raising precious plants, for all kinds of purposes that we now take for granted as part of the normal use of a garden. So in our own time, that resource has only really developed in the last 200 years. Before then, you were either very rich, in which case you could afford your garden was entirely for your pleasure, or you were very poor, in which case you desperately tried to produce food from your garden. There was some middle class, middle ground gardening, but not a lot. And it, it's very interesting that we talk a lot rightly about well-being and mental health and all these things from a garden. They're still a luxury. They're, they're essential for the way we live our lives, but in a sense, it's a measure of how good our lives are that we can afford to think about these things. Incredible. I mean, you must see all sorts of things that are very sobering as well, actually, when you're on these travels, I'm sure. I've seen gardens in townships where... Kids, uh, well, two, the two things that struck me about that is in Johannesburg, I went to a township and uh, visited an outdoor classroom with gardens that they had made. And these were mainly 10 to 12-year-olds. And I said, when these kids grow up, they will know about gardening. He said, only half of them will live to grow up. Half of them will die of AIDS, HIV, half of them are HIV by the time they're about 20. Uh, and that's pretty sobering. And the other place where a township in Cape Town, where a little garden made by children, a man had got the children using stones and pebbles and little bits and pieces of plants they could get, which was the only piece of creativity that was available to them. There was no other expression they could do. And yet across the bay, this is in Hoop Bay in, in Cape Town, were the houses of rock stars and film stars from Northern Europe who would come and use them as holiday homes in the winter. Now, you know, you, you can argue, and I think I do, that life is always unfair, life is always unequal, but it's pretty damn sobering. You know, it's, you do feel that there's something fundamentally wrong with the way we're living our lives in that case. So gardens do that. I mean, I, I think that 
when you travel and see what gardens mean, the other thing is you have to be very careful about is not to apply your system of value judgments and morality and culture onto one that that doesn't share those morals or cultural values or, or even history. It's it's too easy, it's too lazy to come in and say, this is right, that's wrong, even on a horticultural level. You shouldn't be doing it like that. You shouldn't be planting this. That's a form of arrogance. It, it, you go, hopefully, with enough humility to learn rather than to teach. Well, talking of learning, what's it like when you get home? What's it like to get back to Long Meadow after everything you've seen, experienced? You know, does it change the way you look at your own garden and of course it does no of course it does i mean sarah will often say oh god you've come back with all your fancy ways you know <laughs> telling us what we should be doing <laughs> yeah it, it, it's interesting it can be confusing actually it can be confusing because on the one hand you come back fired and inspired by all the different things you've seen on the other hand longmeadow is what it is, uh, and it's it's a product of its climate, of its pl- geography, of the person who made it when he made it, which was fundamentally what the garden was made quarter of a century ago by a much younger me. And to keep changing, I make changes all the time, but you have to accept that you're a product of your past as much as, as what is going in at, at, at the time. And so... On one level, I leave it all behind. I mean, you know, if I go to Alhambra, for example, yes, I made the Paradise Garden, and that was that was as much a, a result of doing the Islamic garden things. But I've never, for example, wanted to make a Japanese garden because I felt that it would just be so out of place and so out of culture that it would be absurd. And, and to be honest, there are very, very few good Japanese gardens in Britain. And I say that with respect to those who've tried to make them, but the truth is, at best, they're a slightly weak copy. I mean, I think the, the Japanese garden at Tatton is very good. But there's no Japanese garden in Japan that looks like it. And no, I don't think that matters. I mean, you, you make what you want to make, and that's fine. Um, and I wouldn't ever criticise someone for making a Japanese garden. But, but having seen them extensively and having sort of written about them and filmed about them, I know I couldn't do them justice. So you just have to park it and say, okay, that's there. And, I mean, for example, the prairies in America, completely understandably, the the current trend, the broad trend in gardening is loosely based on a prairie style. I mean, if you you analyse the gardens that are being planted now by our best garden designers and what have you, yes, we're using structure, but the borders are much more fluid, they're much more open, we're using grasses much more, we're using prairie plants, we're much more aware of climate and the workload and the things that will survive and so on and so forth. And yet then you go to the prairies and you suddenly realise that, that this is the scale of the prairies and how they're done. It's so different. It's such a sort of different idea. You think, well... I wonder. I, I wonder if we're not deluding ourselves. Well, it's often, you know, 
things that you've seen and enjoyed on holiday are often not quite the same when you bring them back, isn't it? It's, it's almost like that. It's the bottle like of that. It's the bottle exactly. of Uzo that you, you bring back with you from Greece that you drank every night with your friends and it was the best time. And it sits on the windowsill or wherever it is. And after about two weeks, you think, oh, I must have a glass of Uzo. And it tastes just foul or muck or it just... Uh, it's. <laughs> I find it, if I could do the Ouzo Garden at Chelsea, couldn't I? Which would be a sort of mishmash of all the things that I've come across. None of them quite right. None of them, no, I mean, I think that's, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think that what you have to do is learn and take in and be inspired, but accept you can't recreate. You know, then it becomes pastiche. And true creativity takes inspiration from lots and lots of different sources, chucks them up in the air, and where it lands is what you do. Whereas if you try and place them accurately, you know, I'm going to have a bit of Spain here and I'm going to have a bit of America there and I'm going to have a bit of Italy there. So, for example, from Italy, I certainly have learnt and have copied, or at least not tried not to copy, things like using really large pots. The cricket pitch, for example, I have here the succession of pots, which are from Italy. That's very Italian, having long views. But, I mean, there's nothing new in that. Ever since people did the Grand Tour, you know, starting in a, the end of the 17th century, people have been doing that. I've been strongly influenced, as everyone else has, by sort of the work that's going on, well, all across Europe, but particularly sort of Holland and Belgium and, and, and using grasses and how that goes on. I made the Paradise Garden, but that was... I think the Paradise Garden is the one thing I've done which is directly related to my travels. And even then, anybody who knows about Paradise Gardens knows that it's inspired by rather than a Paradise Garden. At Longmeadow, you know, it works. It doesn't feel out of place. It feels part of it. So, as you say, it's your version of, isn't it? It's the Longmeadow version of. Yeah, you have to, you have to say that whatever you do in your garden has got to want to be there as much as you want it to be there. Uh, I mean, we always say this about plants in our garden. It's got to want us as much as we want it. And if it doesn't want to be there, it doesn't matter how badly. I mean, I, you know, I would love to have Mechanopsis growing right through my orchard beds all the way through, but Mechanopsis doesn't want to be there. And so, you know, on a plant level, can't happen. And yet I've seen gardens in near Dublin with just practically fields of these wonderful blue flowers. I would give anything to have that in my garden. Can't have it. So I think that when you travel, you have to both leave your very, very deep cultural concepts and beliefs, not behind, but you have to accept that they are one way of looking at the world when it comes to horticulture. But by the same token, I mean, there used to be an expression, I'm sure it's politically incorrect now, about going native. You, you can't take someone else's culture and bring that back lock and stock and barrel to your own. It's what happens when the two meet that are interesting things happen. It's in that, it's in that touching point where real creativity happens. And I think that's easier said than done. You know, I think, I think you have to be pretty switched on. I mean, the two things I would always say to people is, if you're visiting gardens anywhere, but particularly overseas, take two things with you. One is a notebook and a camera and take masses of pictures. I take thousands of pictures. So when I'm back, I pull them up on the screen 
and then I really, really look at them. Because when I'm there, it's all so busy. And yet, I mean, I was doing a voiceover this morning about northern Spain. And in writing the voiceover script, I was writing about a garden and I realised that my notes were very, very perfunctory because I'd written them as we were going along, literally walking around, you know, barely legible. But looking at the pictures, I was able to take in the planting. I was able to take everything, all the feelings I had came back and all the details, which I hadn't really absorbed at the time enough, were there. So take masses of pictures, make notes, any notes, like ugly or brilliant combination of plants or so-and-so, that and that, why, question mark, anything. Just just note it down. And then you digest it later. Oh, it's fascinating. I can't wait to see the Spanish series. I really can't. I mean, we're, we're very fast running out of time, but tell us one more Spanish trip to go and then when when possibly might we be able to watch this, this series? We have to deliver by Christmas. So we, we finish filming on October the 20th. Oh, I'm looking at my diary now. What do we know? I get back on October the 22nd at midnight. It then goes to the edit. And, and of course, these things take, well... We have less and less time to edit, but but about five weeks to edit. I then have to put the voiceover over it. We then have to sort of sort the music out and everything else. The channel wants delivery by Christmas, so they will get their three programmes. They won't go out before Christmas. They are scheduled to go out either in January or at the very latest mid-February. So the thinking is, for all these type of travel programmes is that the, the prime time for a travel gardening programme is when you've got through Christmas, we're all feeling broke, we're all feeling fed up with the weather, it's too miserable to go outside, Gardener's World doesn't start for another month or so, you know, that, that happens. So there is a period somewhere between about the third week of January and the beginning of March when we want to be voyeuristic, we just want to see lovely things, learn something, enjoy other gardens, in other places, and then feel inspired to get out into our own garden later. So it is scheduled, but uh, and you can tell by my voice these things can change, to come out at the end of January. Great stuff. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I enjoyed this very much. I'm sure I'm going to enjoy the Spanish programme. Thank you, Monty. Fascinating and entertaining as always. What great, great fun. I enjoyed that. Well, it's a pleasure. And, and, and I have to stress that... I do feel I have been and am incredibly lucky to have these these gigs that go on and have enlarged my own experience of gardening as well as life immeasurably. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app.